Changing clothes is something that, um, something that's kind of a, just a normal routine of life for us, right? Now, I do remember um, back, especially with Jackie, Jackie would actually change clothes multiple times during the day. Back when she was younger, I, I don't know what she does now, but she, she changed a lot during the day. And so you never knew uh, what was clean, what was dirty, because she was con- she, you changed stuff. Now, we changed clothes, but uh, especially, except on those days where we just hang around in our pajamas all day, uh, for the most part, we, we do change clothes. And on Sundays, we may pay a little bit more attention to exactly what it is that we're wearing other than other days. Uh, there are times where I'll come in and I'll say, okay, Nancy, does this look okay? And, and really for two reasons, I don't want to embarrass her. Secondly, I don't want to embarrass you. And so I want to make sure it, it looks acceptable and occasionally she'll ask me, you know, does this necklace look better or should I wear these boots or should I wear these shoes? She's got one on each foot and I should just tell her, just go like that. It's fine. And, uh, and she listens to me some of the time and uh, that it's just, it's normal. Changing clothes, in fact, is so normal, it's so routine that the Apostle Paul could actually use it as an illustration. And that's what he's going to do today for us. That there are some things in our life that we need to take off, put off of our lives. And then there are things in our life that we need to take on or put on. And so we want to look at that this morning as we continue in Colossians. And so I want to ask you if you've got your Bibles to go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 5 through 14, or at least that's the plan. uh, Verses 5 through 14 today. And uh, the scripture is in your handout. It'll be up on the screen, but if you've got it. Uh, then you can certainly read along with us. And I just want to ask the Lord now to help us to open our ears now so that we can receive what he has for us. Father God, we do thank you that you have something to say today and we want to hear it. And so we are, we're kind of attuning our ears and attuning our heart in order to hear what it is for you that you want to say to us today. Uh, Because Lord, you want us to experience life transformation. And we experience that as we hear from you, as we yield ourselves to you, and as we allow you to form this fruit of the Spirit in us. And so, Lord, would you teach us? Would you encourage us? Would you challenge us? Would you convict us? In other words, Lord, whatever it is that we need to individually hear from you today, would you make that happen? And we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to begin looking in uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. And there we begin to read these, these words. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he gives us a little short list here. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, I know, let's not move forward here because... I'm going to actually want to come back to verse 7, Kelly, so if you'll keep that in mind. He begins here in verse 5 with these words, put to death. Now that's pretty serious. He's basically saying there's some things in your life that you need to kill. You need to exterminate. And it was ironic that as I am working on this message on Sunday morning, uh, not on Sunday morning, but one, one of the mornings during the week, that who comes to my door but the exterminator wanting to know if he can spray? And I'm going, well, absolutely. Why? 
because I'm sorry if it offends you, but if there are roaches or there are ants or there are mice, I want them dead, dead, dead. I don't want those things in my office. I don't want them in this building. I want those things completely gone. Well, when you think of, when you read this, put to death, read exterminate, and understand that you no more want these things in your life than you want your home filled with mice and roaches and other varmints. You just don't want those. And so you want to get rid of these things. Paul says as new creations in Christ, there's some things that we need to get out of our lives. We need to kill dead, dead, dead. We should be serious about exterminating these things. And and here's the list. Let me me share these with you. This is just a short list. It's certainly not all inclusive, but he mentions these things. He mentions sexual immorality. Um, The word in the Greek is the word from which we get our word pornography. Um, But this means any kind of sexual relationship that's outside of marriage. Get rid of it. Now, these must have been issues that were brought to him by Epaphroditus. If you'll remember from our our first message, he got met. Paul had never been to Colossae. And so he got word as to what's going on there from Epaphroditus, who came and shared with him the struggles that were taking place in the church. And so Paul is probably addressing some of those. But man, he could be speaking right now in 21st century America. Get rid of any sexual relationship that's outside of marriage. Impurity, that word means any uncleanness of thought, word, or action. So this broadens things. Okay, I understand I'm not to touch, but I'm not to dwell on it either. This is the very same thing that Jesus told us. He says, listen, if you look at another woman and you lust after her, you've committed sin in your heart. You didn't touch her. You didn't do anything physically to her. But on the inside, you already have. And so sexual immorality, impurity, he goes on with this word passion. Your translation may have it as lust. It basically means any desire that controls us. So this is, it is have a sexual component, but it's broader than that. Any desire that we have in us that controls us is that kind of passion. Um, Evil desire is a longing for something that's worthless or evil or harmful, and we have people that are chasing after that all day long. Stuff that they, they, they know is not good in their life. They know is harmful for them and for others, and yet they chase after it. And then finally, he uses this word covetousness, which basically, in some translations, is greed. And it means a, a desire to continually have more, or a desire to have what someone else has, wishing they didn't have it and you did. What Paul says is, is this covetousness, this greed, this is idolatry. This is, this is no better than setting up a stone or wooden idol in your home and worshiping it. When you have this desire that overwhelms, that drives you to such a point that your life is focused on this thing or focused on this person, then you have created an idol and you are now worshiping it. And here in the United States, we have set up all kinds of idols. Sometimes they have to do with with sexuality. Sometimes they have to do with possessions, wanting more and more and more, thinking that if I could only have this or have this or this person in my life or that thing in my life, that my life would be complete and happy and content. 
That's covetousness. That's idolatry. And Paul says, you know what? There's some things in your life you need to put off. You need to get rid of these things in your life. You need to put them to death. And he goes on to say, you see up here, on account of these and things like these. On a, let's go back to that verse, uh, verse 6. On account of these and things like these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. We don't like to talk about that a lot, do we? We'd rather talk about happy things. But Paul's making it abundantly clear that there's a judgment that's coming. um, The prophet Zephaniah, Joel, and Malachi call it the great and terrible day of the Lord. That doesn't sound any fun at all. There's judgment coming. The book of Revelation says that the wine of God's wrath is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. It's not diluted. There's coming a time, we're told, when the wrath of God is coming. The judgment of God is coming upon sin. Now, some of you need to hear this because I'm not trying to make you, I'm not trying to scare you. But for those of you who are not in Christ, for those of you who are not followers of Jesus Christ, you need to understand that wrath is, is going to fall on you. But for those of us who are in Christ, we need to hear this. Jesus has already drank the cup of God's wrath. He has already drained the cup of God's wrath. And because he has for us taken the judgment, what the Bible tells us is there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is not our judgment anymore. Jesus has taken that judgment for us. In John 3.18, we read, whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the one of the only son of God. And so there's a judgment coming. But for those of you who are in Christ, you need to understand that's not yours. Jesus has already taken the punishment. Jesus already faced the judgment. Jesus has taken the wrath of God upon himself so that you might be spared from it. But if you're not in Christ, if you're not in Christ, it's coming. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to... uh, sit in a funeral service many times in funeral services I'm, I'm the one standing up but had a chance to sit there and to listen and as i did some truths that i've shared before were shared once again and those truths are real simple life is precious but life is fragile it's not going to go on forever death is certain and so is judgment these These are truths. You can't change that. It is what it is. But you can be spared from the judgment by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Those who believe in Him are not condemned. For those who don't, they're condemned already. And you need to make that decision. Some of you need to make that decision today. The wrath of God is coming. But by faith in Jesus Christ, you are spared from that 
and given instead life. Now there is an interesting thing that we're told in Romans chapter 1. We're also told that the wrath of God is a present reality. And here's what I want you to understand about this. And the only way I can really communicate it is to share with you some verses from Romans 1. These are not in your handout, but you may want to write this down. Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to 25. And this is what it says. It begins with the same term. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, listen, therefore God gave them up. God, or your translation may be, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. Here's what I'm trying to say here. God's judgment of sin today is to let people have what they want. As a parent, you you struggle with this. There are things that you tried to keep your kids from, but they became so insistent, so insistent, so insistent that you said, okay, I will let you do that. You just need to understand the consequences are on you. And one of God's ways that he tries to break people so that they'll turn back to him is to let them go and to take their sin to its inevitable conclusion. Very much like the father in the story of the prodigal son. Knowing that doing what, giving his son his inheritance and allowing him to go out and to sow his wild oats was, was the worst thing possible for his son The son had already left in his heart. And so he let him go. The beautiful part of that story is when he finally got to the worst part of his life, when when everything fell apart and, and he was all alone, he then remembered, he remembered his father. And I want to tell you this, parents, it is so very, very important that you invest that you teach, that you encourage your children to know who God is. This needs to be woven into every part of life from the earliest on. I remember taking walks with my kids and, and we'd say, and I would go, that's God's tree. That's God's tree. That's God's squirrel. To ride along and, and say, look at the, you know, the sun's going down or the sun's coming up and you say, look at the The sky that God's painted for us. We need to constantly be pointing our kids towards the goodness of God and the mercy of God and the greatness of God. So that if they do go and have their prodigal experience, that they have a father to remember to come home to. That they remember that God's a God of mercy and grace and will receive them 
back. Well, Paul goes on with his list, and we'll jump now at verse 7. It, uh, he, he, he mentions some other things here. Uh, in these things you once walked. This was your way of life. This was your pattern of life when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Do away with them. And then he gives us another short list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Whether it's seething anger that's under the surface or anger that goes boom, outburst, rage, whether it is tearing someone apart with your words or allowing your language just to sink down into the gutter. Paul says, you need to put those things away. Those aren't toys to be played with. Those aren't pets to be played with. These things are serious. These things are lethal. As a matter of fact, we're told in in Proverbs uh, that life and death are in the power of the tongue. These things do damage to you, to others, to the cause of Christ. None of these belong in the life of the believer. And I hope that you look at this and you recognize that God is concerned about these things in your life. It, it is not in... The, I, I had a lady in my first church and uh, she didn't use what we would call foul language, gutter language. She didn't use that, but her words were very biting, very sharp, very hurting. I mean, she could just eviscerate someone with her words. And, and there was one time I... I called her down on it not in public but I called her down on it we were talking because she was a lady that cut my hair and I was a little bold doing that because she had scissors but here here was her response what comes up comes out and I would talk to other people and I would say do you see how damaging this is and they go oh well that's just her can I tell you something that is not acceptable It hurts you. It hurts others. It damages your witness. We need to be careful how we speak. And and then he goes on. He says in verse 9, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Don't lie to each other. He pulls this one out. We think lying's a small thing. That, you know, it's, it's just kind of normal. It just, it just happens. A study back in 2002, the University of Massachusetts said that 60% of adults can't have a 10-minute conversation without telling a lie. And of that 60%, they typically tell three lies or more in the 10-minute period. Are you kidding? Paul says, you know what? That does not belong in the realm of the people of God. That does not belong in the church and it does not belong to the church when they're not in the building. We often take lying lightly. But what does Paul tell us? Kill it. Exterminate it. Put it to death. It doesn't belong in your life. You are a different person now. You are in Christ now. You have changed locations now. 
We are no longer the people that we used to be. We are new creations in Christ. And as new creations, we're called to put off the old self so that we can put on the new self, which is being renewed daily so that we become more and more like our creator. One of our, in our, in our vision statement as a church, we say that we want people to believe in Jesus and grow in their belief. We want people to belong in the, a small group where they can connect and grow. And we want people to become more like Jesus daily in attitude and action. Let me just add, and also in speech. We should be transformed, changed to be more like the one that we say that we worship. So here is, let me give it to you in a sentence. Here is a call of God in our lives. Be in practice what you are in position. Let me explain it. Be in practice what you are in position. The person you are in Christ, be that person. Who you are in Christ affects the way you speak. It affects the way you act. It affects your relationships. It affects everything that you do. If it doesn't, there's something wrong here. Being in Christ means that we are, we are beginning daily to be conformed. Now, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like waving a magic wand. You don't have a fairy godmother that comes and transforms a, a pumpkin into a carriage. But it is to happen because that's what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in us. You see, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is something that grows in us. And I've never planted anything and then it immediately just popped up. There was a growing process and a a waiting process and a changing process. But there was a process. The fruit of the Spirit, we're told, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What is that telling us? That's telling us this is what God is trying to produce in us. This is what, if we'll get out of the way, the Holy Spirit will bring into our lives. Our lives begin to look more and more like that. But it's so easy for us to carry carry the stuff, to bring the, the old habits, the old self, the old sins from our old life into our new life. Can I tell you honestly, when we moved here, wow, 17 years ago, something like that? When we moved here, uh, the moving van pulled up, had all these boxes. We unloaded these boxes, and there were some boxes that we looked at, and we said, we've got no place for this to go. And so we pulled down the steps, and we carried it into the attic, and we planted it there. And it's still there. And I don't know that we're moving, but when we move, everything's got to come out. The question is, will that same box just go with us again? There's some stuff that we carry from our old life into our new life that doesn't belong in our new life. It has no place there. It doesn't fit there. It's actually harmful for it to be there. And God says, put it away, put it to death. And here's the good news. You need to hear this because some of you have been struggling with this. Here's the good news. God empowers us to do what he calls us to do. God doesn't call us to do something and then not give us what we need in order to complete the task. We need to tap into that. Now, again, we don't tap into it by just showing up a couple of Sundays out of of the month and, and having our name on a church roll. That doesn't typically do it. 
It involves being in God's Word, being in prayer, being connected intimately with God's people. That's how it begins to change. And together, we began to... This is not just an individual thing. Together, we began to be more in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. It's one of the great things about being in a small group. It's a place that can hold us accountable. Where we can come and say, hey, listen, I'm struggling with this. And you know that those eight or nine or ten people in that group... They're praying for you regularly, daily. They're struggling with you in prayer to help you move from where you are to where God wants you to be. Whatever it is that God's called us to, he equips us to be there. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 say, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but also much more absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Listen. Work out your own salvation. There's a part that you have to play, putting off and putting on. But while you're doing that, God's at work in you. And he is faithful to complete what he started in you. We're told in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And so we've got to recognize that we have a power source to help us to live the way God has called us to live. So when we look back at these behaviors, when we look back at these attitudes, let me tell you how how they cause damage in your life. And there are three ways that they cause damage in your life. First of all, they hinder our intimacy with God. The closeness of the relationship that God wants with us. When we allow these things to live in our lives, to remain in our lives, they get in the way. And we have guilt. And we have shame. And we we go try to hide in the bushes like Adam and Eve did when God wants to come and walk with us. But if these things are put away, the guilt and the shame are gone. And when God comes walking in the cool of the day, we're ready to bound out and go, well, here I am. Let's go. Secondly, these things damage our Christian witness. You can completely undermine your Christian witness by the way you speak. When people hear you, they go, that doesn't really fit (laughs) with, with, with what they're what they're claiming over here, their, their words don't fit or their actions don't fit or, or they're, you know, I, they, they talk about Jesus all the time, but they don't look a lot like Jesus. Hypocrisy terribly damages our witness. Now, we'll never live perfect lives. We'll never live perfect lives this side of heaven, but we do need to understand that how we live matters to our Christian witness. One of the biggest reasons that people say that they won't give Christianity a second look is because of hypocrisy. Now, that may be a lame excuse, but there's an edge of truth to it. And the third way these behaviors and attitudes affect us is that they destroy unity in the church. When we leave these things in our lives, they're cancerous. They destroy unity. And we're told, Paul says, to 
put off the old self. That's an idea of complete separation. Get rid of this. We are new creations in Christ and, the, and we belong. That means it's not only an individual thing, but we belong to a new spiritual family and God cares about that spiritual family intimately. And then in verse 11, he tells us a little bit about it. He says, here, that is in Christ, there is no Greek and Jew. The big dividing line there. There is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, Jesus, in Christ, these lines that separated us, Jesus takes those lines away. He just erases those lines. They don't exist anymore. And instead, he draws this, this, this circle around us. And we're all in the circle with him and he in the center. That's the way the church is to be. These lines are insignificant. They try to divide us, and certainly Satan will tell us that they divide us, but it's not true. Our relationship with Jesus Christ overrides whatever would separate us. We become brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul tells us in Philippians 2 to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, listen, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Can you imagine how the church of Jesus Christ would be if we simply took Philippians 2, 3 and put it into practice. That you actually considered others ahead of yourself. You put others at the front of the line. This is hard to do. But it's necessary. So I'm going to give you a good way to practice this out in the community. The next time you're at Publix or Ingalls or wherever you shop, and you've got your groceries, and you're in line, and someone comes up behind you with a cart full, let them go ahead of you. You go, well, that's just stupid. Who in the world would do something like that? That is crazy talk. Because they probably got coupons. And they're going to want to write a check. This is going to slow me down. Now, why would you do a thing like that? You don't have to do that. But you may want to do it just to practice because sometimes that's exactly what it's like in the church when you have to put others' needs ahead of your own. Others' preferences ahead of your own. Take the back seat. It is not convenient. It is not easy. And yet Jesus became a servant of all and calls us to follow him in that servanthood. Now, Paul's told us some things to take off. Let me quickly give you the things he says to put on in their place. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, 
So you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Here's your homework. Look at these words here. As chosen ones, holy and beloved. If we could ever let that sink in. If that became our identity. It would change everything. And so take three post-it notes. Write on one, chosen. Write on the second one, holy. Write on the third one, loved. And stick those on your bathroom mirror to see every morning. To remind yourself just who you are in Christ. I am cho- God chose me. He didn't have to choose me, but he did. I am holy. That means God has set me apart for a purpose. And I am loved. I am near and dear to the heart of God. When we begin to see ourselves like that, then we begin to have compassionate hearts. And we need to, we begin to to be kind, that is to have active goodness towards others. And, And we begin to display humility, that is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves Less. We begin to have meekness. That is a genuine concern for the rights and the feelings and the needs of others. We begin to have patience. That is, we become more self-restrained and we have a longer fuse and we begin to bear with one another. And that means put up with people who aren't like us and sometimes who, who, who ha- doesn't have the same past as us or doesn't have the same ideas as us, who, who don't, who aren't easy to like. Bearing with one another. Forgiving one another. My goodness, how many churches have been torn apart because of lack of forgiveness one member towards another? And displaying love, the greatest of the virtues, putting that on like the the final coat, tying it around your waist, and that becomes the ultimate virtue. Jesus said that's how we'll be known by our love. And pursuing harmony, unity, in the life of the church. And I'm not going to read the passage, but uh, just write this down. John 17, 20 to 23. Go back and read that this afternoon. It just tells you in Jesus' final prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, three times, three times in that short prayer, he prays for you and I to be one. He prays for that unity. The challenge for us is to begin to practice our position. Begin to live as believers. To dump those things from our lives that hinder our relationship with God, hinder our relationship with others. If we don't, if we try to hold on to the old habits and the old man and and just wrap it up with Christian clothing, then we end up in this kind of spiritual no-man's land that gives us no peace, no contentment, that robs God of the glory that's due Him when grace should change us, but it doesn't, and that robs the gospel of its transforming power because people look and go, hey, you talk a good game, but you're no more like Jesus now than when I knew you 10 years ago. 
It's time to put it off. And I want to end, not in the New Testament, with a verse from the Old Testament. Because there's a time where you and I need to come and say, okay, enough is enough. The prophet Elijah proclaimed in 1 Kings 18, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? How long are you going to try to straddle the fence? How long are you going to be willing to live with the old self and the new self trying to peacefully coexist? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if it's Baal or some other thing that you have in your life that's more important, then follow that. Make up your mind and do it today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking this morning. And I pray, Lord, that if that you'd bring conviction on those who need Christ, who need to come and embrace the one who took the wrath for them. Lord, today, if you're calling, then we want to answer, we want to come. Lord, I want to pray for those who are struggling, who have a very real struggle with old habits, with ruts of their life, with the old self. Lord, I pray that today that they might find strength from you. And Father, I pray that if there are those who need to be part of this fellowship, of the life of this body, and you're calling them to come and connect and grow, Lord, that you will bring them forward today to make that stand. Lord, enough is enough. We're tired of limping between two opinions. Today, we choose you. In Jesus' name, amen.